Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Our series is called The Passion of the Christ because we're going through the last day or so of Jesus' life before he gives up his spirit. Today we are at this very powerful text where he, he does actually give up his spirit. He dies in the text today, and some pretty amazing things happen. Today is called Finished. Those of you who've been here the last, now seven weeks, there's been some rough stuff, hasn't there? Anybody here excited that it's finished? Right? I need Jesus to die in my place to wash away my guilt before God. But it doesn't mean I enjoy watching it. The American addiction to comfort keeps us away from texts like these. But he had something he wanted to accomplish. And he did. And today, five days from Good Friday, seven from Easter, we're getting to the text where we're kind of at the, ver- we're at the very end of Jesus' suffering. And there's this little bit of interlude, which I'm going to preach Friday night. So if you're not here for Good Friday service, you're going to miss it. So Jesus isn't resurrected until the start of chapter 20. That's next Sunday. But at least we're getting to the end of his suffering. And some interesting things happen along the way. So read the text with me. We're going to do verses 28 through 37. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and released his spirit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath and a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Um... I don't want to be too graphic, but if I don't do a basic explanation, we won't understand part of this text. Um, if you've seen a crucifix before, you've seen that there's also a nail driven through the feet or the heels of the victim. Um, that isn't so that they can't kick. That is to prolong their pain. the victim could only breathe by pushing themselves up on that nail. That's the only way they could get a breath before they slunk back down. And some victims were known to live four or five days. You were lucky in Judea to get crucified on a Friday because they wanted your body down by sundown for Sabbath. So 
to take a club to your shins, as unfun as that sounds, it was mercy because you were about to suffocate and it was going to be over. Only one problem. Scripture said of Messiah that not one of his bones would be broken. That's why I have to explain this. God fulfills all that he has said or God is a liar. Does that make sense? God tells the truth and he tells the truth 100% of the time or God is a liar and we don't have our Messiah. Okay. So Pilate... Uh, says yes. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also can believe. Remember, John is right there. Jesus just said, John, take care of my mom. He's right there. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, no, not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one they pierced. Lord Jesus, teach us the word of God today, please. Lord Jesus, give us the wisdom and humility that comes only from your spirit so that we can really hear and really receive what you're saying. Holy Spirit, allow to fall away any uh, foolish conjecture or opinion on my part if I insert anything into this that shouldn't be there. Holy Spirit, save those of us who do not yet see Jesus for who he is. And those of us who do love you, God, help us to obey you with even greater joy from this moment forward because of what we see in you, because of our victory that you have purchased on the cross and given to us as an inheritance. Allow the word to bear much fruit in our lives, God. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, Jesus came to die for humanity, not to be a good example. This is, um, this sounds like unnecessary deconstruction at first. If if you've been in church a while, depending on your church background, you might have heard a lot of Um, A really important doctrine, theologians call Christus exemplar, just mean Christ our example, Messiah our example. And that doctrine is a good thing and it is a beautiful thing. And what that doctrine is, is that if you want to know what Mosaic law looks like, if you want to be a good Jew and go, what does it look like to keep Torah, those first five books of the Bible, what does that look like? You look at Jesus. Just look at him, his life, the way he treats people, the way he treats the least of these. You want to know what the law of God looks like manifest? You look at Jesus. So that's why the doctrine is true and it's beautiful and it's helpful. 
the last 300 years or so, um, let me think of a non-derogatory name. Bad excuses for theologians have, since the Enlightenment, liked to take this idea of Christ as our example and make it the sum total of the cross, where Jesus' life and ministry on earth was just to show us how to be good. And they've written thick books about it. And much of the church has just drunk it up. Yeah, Jesus is showing us how to be good. But if you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can hear how dangerous that is. Jesus died because I couldn't be good. I could not keep the law, no matter how hard I tried. The original doctrine, which must be affirmed of Christus Exemplar, is that Christ is example to the church, not to the world. Allow me to explain. If you've already come to the foot of the cross to receive the mercy, grace, and forgiveness that his blood offers the sinner, you are now in right standing with the Father because you've been forgiven and the Father looks at you as if you've never sinned. Can I get an amen? Amen. To those of us who've already rightly aligned ourselves to the Father through Jesus, we already know who Jesus is. We have the Holy Spirit inside us. We now work very hard out of joy and out of love. We work to obey our Savior. We're not trying to follow the behavior of an ethos, a first century ethicist. Like, that is secular humanism personified. Somebody lived a really good life and you bought his book and followed him on Twitter and you're trying to do all the good stuff like he did. You are the one in the driver's seat. That's how the self-help section of Barnes & Noble works. You stay in the driver's seat and that's why that section is so big. Everyone wants to be in the driver's seat. The Christian is free, completely free to look at the life of Jesus as our example and to try to be like him. We're totally free because we know we're not trying to earn God's love. And that is the only way that Christ can be your example and you not become a slave. If you don't yet understand the love of God is freely given and undeserved, if you don't get that yet, the example of Christ will crush you because you can't be him. You can't be him. Furthermore, this doctrine is that Jesus is the perfect embodiment and the perfect illustration of all of God's law and all of God's heart. That in no way means that we, the people of God, didn't know God's heart until Jesus showed up. If you read the Old Testament, you know that God is furious when someone gets murdered. You know he is furious when one people group declares an unjust war and just genocide You know, God does not like stealing. He wants human beings to work six out of seven days. However you take that literally, or the the point is human beings cannot just be defined by their production. We have to rest and he created Sabbath for us. There are all kinds of things that show us the heart of God in the law of God. We already knew what good behavior looked like. The people of God, we already knew. We just weren't fulfilling it. So let's not pretend that Jesus came along and now we know what it looks like to be good. No, no. 
He was being morally perfect because when he went to his cross, he was going to take that perfection and give it as a gift to the church. Put this on. It'll get you into heaven. You stand at the gates and your behavior like clothing is there. You want to be dressed in white? I did that for you. So depending on which calendar you read, 33, perhaps 36 years of life where Jesus never, ever sinned in his thoughts, passions, words, or actions. He wasn't just doing that to show you what was good. We already knew what was good from the law. He did it for you. Because you and I, 2,000 years later, we're going to sin a million times a day and have no answer as to why God should let us into heaven. We were going to have no good answer. So he was living a life for us that he was going to trade for your sin and for mine. This is why Christ as example, very, very dangerous if you do not first believe in Christ as Savior. When he is Savior and Lord over you, now you can follow his example because you're not trying to earn the love of God. Does that make sense? I'm going to belabor this point because all the world's religion is trying to earn the love of God. Christians don't do that. Next step, stop counting spiritual brownie points. Write this one in your margin if you need to. Stop counting spiritual brownie points. Boy Scout badges, whatever illustration you want to use. Level 37 on World of Warcraft, whatever helps you. Stop counting. Knock it off. Look again at verse 28. Jesus got really, really tired, so he died. Did I read verse 28 correctly? Jesus had just taken way too much of a beating, and so he died. Is that what verse 28 says? This is how a sovereign God dies, by the way. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. I am done now. I have lived the perfect life. I have suffered everything my church deserves to suffer, but she won't have to now. I have satisfied my father's wrath against that sin. I am finished. And so he does one last thing to fulfill scripture. He says, I'm thirsty. He drinks of it. He sighs, bows his head in reverence and gives up his spirit on his terms. On his terms. So if this life and if this death is not about showing us ethics, but it's to be holiness for us and then gifted to us. What then is the benefit of monitoring my own good and bad behavior and keeping a tally that God is not keeping? What is the point of that? Lewis said once, the reason that game is so dangerous is if you're really bad at being good, you'll end up in despair and you'll quit. You'll just act like holiness doesn't matter. 
and that if you're really good at it, you'll become self-righteous and arrogant. Instead, every single sin, Christian, in case I haven't told you this, I probably have not done a good job or somebody else has told you, when you sin, when I sin, every single time we go back to the foot of the cross, every time. Period. So we say something that sounds like cheap grace in the moment. Jesus, I am so glad that you died for me. Thank you for dying for me to forgive that sin that I just did right there. But it's not a thank you so that I can go on. Paul said, should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. No, you see, he loves me, so he died for me to forgive me. And now because he died for me, I love him. So I hate that I sinned against him. If you're ever wondering if you're actually a Christian, I've got an easy button for you. Do you hate it when you dishonor your Savior? Do you hate it when you're able to sin and you realize that there's a particular sin in your life where it doesn't really bother and you've kind of become callous? That's just called Tuesday. I don't know if you know, like, we have sins that kind of kick us in the butt. Other areas, we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we repent quickly, and sometimes there's an area where we've just given in so many times that we've become a little bit callous, and we're scared, and we're frustrated, and we're angry. God, why doesn't that bother me more? I wish that it did. God, would you make me angry at the things that make you angry? Because there's some things in my life I know by scripture are wrong, and I don't want to sin against you, but there's a, there's a whole category of my life where I sin so easily and so quickly and with so little repentance. And I know that I'm, I, I love you because I repent in all these other areas. God, would you gain victory here? If you're counting spiritual brownie points, you're gonna lose that game every time. You're playing judge. I am playing judge if I count the brownie points. God, you should give me credit because I did lots of good things recently. You owe me. Or I do really, really poorly. Instead of looking to the cross, I'm looking to myself and I go, oh, woe me, woe is me, poor me, I'm terrible, I'm worthless. I guess I'll go eat worms. You lose either way. Now, just to prove my street cred as an older millennial, we're not gonna talk about LeBron James. Some of us are old enough to know the gloriousness, the awesomeness. So, in case you're too young to know, or if you didn't watch NBA basketball in 1991, because the Holy Spirit had not led you into that area of righteousness. (laughs) For those that don't know basketball, the rim is at 10 feet. Look at where the top of Jordan's head is. There is no trampoline on an NBA court, in case you're new to sports. Um, There is no buddy system, like cheerleaders, where two of them throw somebody into the air. That's not a thing. Um, The floor's not made of rubber. He got himself up there. And... They wouldn't have taken the picture if that ball wasn't going in. That ball's going in. 
And 80,000 people, I don't know how big it, basketball stadiums don't have that many, but 20,000 people are going to scream their heads off and many more at home because Michael Air Jordan is doing his thing. One of the reasons that this photo is so famous is because of what you cannot see. Uh, Jordan's right foot left the ground at the free throw line. If you don't know basketball, he traveled more, far more left to right than he did up and down. Um, so if you're a real child of the early 90s, you can't look at this picture without hearing, fly like an eco. Um, or better yet, after Space Jam, I believe I can fly. Um, before R. Kelly went to jail. Um, now question, if you were one of the lucky fans that was there to get to see his airness, you were there that day. How much joy would be crushed if you found out after this really cool slam dunk, you found out through the announcement speakers, they said, hey, everybody, Mr. Jordan just did that in order to show you how to do it. Were you watching closely? Mr. Jordan, would you do that one more time, please? He comes through and he does it one more time. All right, you have now seen it twice. If you notice, he took off at the baseline. If you notice, the ball went in. If you notice, he stopped to, t to smile at the camera. So you got it? A $17 million contract is on the line, so come on. Martin, you're first. Come up, you know, right? Take off from the baseline. Like, oh, and by the way, five of the best basketball players on planet Earth are trying to stop you when you do it. Other than that, this should be easy, right? Christian, when you look at the life of Jesus... And when you look at the death of Jesus, he is not showing you how it's done. He is doing for you something you cannot possibly do for yourself. That's the point. And pride gets in the way. Our pride doesn't get in the way at the basketball game. We're not sitting there 50 pounds overweight with a $9 Dr. Pepper going, I'm glad he did that because I'm going to do it next. <laughs> you know, like, we're not doing that. He's getting the paid the big bucks because he can do that. He knows his role. And in fact, at never at any point in I don't know how many seasons Jordan played, 16, 17, I don't think he ever walked into an arena thinking, okay, 20,000 people are watching really carefully to learn how to do this, so I've got to be really, you know, I've got to be on point today. Everybody watch carefully. This moment of awe, this moment of celebration would have been utterly crushed if everybody in the room was told, now you have to do it. 
there'd be no joy. It's like, I, I didn't actually buy a ticket to go get on the court. This is the other side of the coin from Christus Exemplar. Jesus does something for me first that I cannot do for myself. And then, and actually, it's not even a, totally a counterpoint. Because when I come to the foot of the cross and when I let Jesus die for me, like I said last week, and the blood of Jesus washes my guilt away, the scripture says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. Even if and when I look to Christ as an example, it's still the Holy Spirit giving me the power to obey. That's... uh, Philippians 2. So it's still Jesus. Jesus is still the one taken off (laughs) from the free throw line. When Greg Kaiser obeys Jesus now, it's still the Holy Spirit who did it. I'm just yielding to what the Holy Spirit's doing in my life. Sometimes I'm yielding more and sometimes I'm yielding less. And the community of faith encourage and teach and rebuke and the word of God instructs how the Holy Spirit's doing it and, and transforming my mind. Brothers and sisters, stop counting spiritual brownie points. When you sin, his grace is sufficient and he will pick you back up. And when you are victorious and you don't sin and you do what's right, it was the Holy Spirit who did it in you. So, to quote my friend Matt Chandler, who preached for us last spring, one time when I was sick, no one in the kingdom of God should ever, ever walk with a swagger. Neither should anyone ever walk with a limp. Neither of those is appropriate. Secondly, Jesus' death is offensive because it declares you and me to be sinners. It's offensive. Look at verse 30. When Jesus had tasted the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and released his spirit. The word that Jesus spoke here that we're reading in English as it is finished has been found by archaeologists at the bottom of receipts. What would Jesus be saying at the end of his life that would have anything to do with a receipt? Any thoughts? Something transactional just happened. Cosmic transaction. A cosmic purchase just happened. Or another way of looking at it, a just judge condemned someone who was guilty and an innocent man stepped in and said, I want to die in his place. Someone had to die. That payment had to be made. And Jesus, after his time on the cross, says, paid in full. This is finished. This is over. This is the exact same thought that I want you to have in your minds when you read Romans 8.1. 
There is therefore, because of all the things he said in chapter seven, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paid in full. This is over. This struggle with sin, you're temporally, right now, you're fighting with the practicals of trying to not sin because you love your savior, but you need to understand there's no condemnation. Satan, the prosecuting attorney, he has no argument. And not anymore, not for the Christian. The blood of Jesus is too powerful for him to have an argument. Nothing sticks. Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word. Let me translate that into English. For the Christian, the blood of Jesus Christ is your defense attorney. If you go into the court of heaven, you cannot get a better defense attorney than the blood of Jesus. When Jesus, right before he gives up his life, says, their debts are paid in full, I died for them, he inherently said something offensive to your flesh, to your old natural self. If you're not sure what you think of Jesus yet, you need to be offended by this if you aren't. Jesus called the whole world sinners with his last breath. That's what he did. If you're a human being, Jesus' last breath, he called you a sinner. Dirty, rotten scoundrel. Scruffy looking nerf herder. And you and I go, who's scruffy looking? Right? Our pride is offended. Why are you calling me guilty? Why are you telling me I'm broken? Why are you telling me I have needs? As I've said before, let me submit to you, the same God who calls you guilty also dies to wash away that guilt. Maybe you should get over your offense. Maybe get over that offense. Like you could choose to do that. You know that, right? We're in a culture nowadays where we act oftentimes like our first reaction, our first emotion is inherently true and ultimate. And in reality, our emotions lie to us all the time. Maybe I was offended that Jesus called me a sinner and maybe I can choose to get over it. Maybe he's right. Maybe I'm not perfect. Next step. Humble yourself and receive grace. Grace is a gift that you and I are never going to reach out and receive if our pride is still in the way. I am morally perfect. I am sufficient on my own. You can't tell me I'm a sinner. You can't judge me. Or you could just humble yourself. Yeah, I am not perfect. Far from. Particularly if you're new to the Bible, I want to encourage you to look at a book called Exodus chapter 20. You're going to see there the Ten Commandments amongst other laws. It's very quick for all of us to look through there and go, oh my goodness, I have broken a bunch of God's rules. If you understand them rightly, the very first rule that you read, you're going to see how you broke it. We've broken all of God's rules, broken all of God's laws. So humble yourself because Jesus is offering grace to anyone who will receive it. Anyone. This is the path forward. He has loved you. He has died for you. And you and I have free will. We can choose to receive it and walk in joy, to walk in victory. Sin doesn't stick on me anymore. Like somebody sprayed that, that windshield stuff all over Greg. 
And even when he sins, it doesn't stick. The condemnation won't stick because what got sprayed all over me? The blood of Jesus. So the accusations of the enemy no longer stick. Even though I did sin, God knows it. He died for it. So I walk in victory. I typed into Google presidential pardon. Google sometimes is your best friend and sometimes not so much. Because I realized all of the first pictures were all um, current or recent presidents and I'm like, I don't want to bring up politics. Let's go back a ways. <laughs> so some of you are old enough to have strong opinions about Truman, but not, not everybody. So for however long now, we've been pardoning a turkey, a national turkey, every year right before Thanksgiving, which is really kind of sad. So there's this one turkey that doesn't get it. <laughs> hey, buddy, you made it. Your cousin, though? No, not so much. Everybody else is going to be at dinner just on the table. What was the status of the average turkey right before this turkey was chosen? What is the status and probability of all the turkeys and all the turkey farms across America? It's actually a terrible status because they were bred for this purpose. Your whole life, you've been headed to an invitation to dinner your whole life. And then a pardon. Now, do you think that turkey has any clue what's going on right now? If you chopped its head off, it would not know what's going on. If you set it free, it would not know what's going on. It doesn't know it's the President of the United States that's touching it. It does not know. And the Gospels are so clear that the disciples just did not understand what was happening as Jesus went to his cross. We didn't get it. John's going to tell us later the Holy Spirit illumined them, like the Holy Spirit allowed them to see. You can be pardoned and saved and miss all of it. And someone tells you after the fact what happened. And so now the church is pointing backwards 2,000 years through history, letting people know, because we love you, something big happened, and it happened for you. You didn't understand it at the time. In fact, I didn't either. Somebody just told me four years ago, or somebody just told me 15 years ago, or somebody just told me 30 years ago. And now I want to tell you, I know it's offensive to be told that you're a sinner, but what if that's an objective reality? What, it is a, what if it's an objective reality that all these turkeys in these turkey farms are headed toward a terrible destiny? What if that's just true? Everybody gets so offended by the concept of hell. What if it's true? 
I've told you guys the story before. There was a guy at the Loma Prieta earthquake in 1989. There was a guy who saw the section of the Bay Bridge fall out and he hopped out of his car and he's waving his arms trying to get cars to stop and people thought that he was a looter or they were gonna rob him and they drove past him to their death. Christians are in the peculiar position we have been for 2,000 years and we will continue to be. That we look like a fool waving and screaming and saying, don't do this. Your rebellion against God has horrible consequences. We do not browbeat you. We do not hit you over with the Bible. We're not excited at the idea of somebody going to hell. We preach because we don't want anyone to go there. Hell gets more and more logical the more and more you think, you know what? If there is a God and if he gets to decide what's right and wrong and if I've done tons of things that are wrong, maybe I am guilty before God. Like only humility allows you to go down that logical path. Maybe I have done something wrong and the only way I can get there really is to start off saying, my name is Greg and I am not God. That's step one but we all really like being God. So we're offended when somebody comes along and says, there's a pardon. There's a pardon from the highest authority in the land that you're not gonna die. And instead of it being good news, we're offended. Please humble yourself and receive grace. I'm gonna pray for us. God, I ask your Holy Spirit to keep the scriptures mulling around in our mind all week long. God, please allow the words it is finished to echo through our hearts all week long as we ponder and chew on the full meaning, the implications, God. God, allow that to create gratitude in the heart of the church. God, allow the church to walk in victory where we are no longer slaves to sin. We are not obligated in any way to do what the sinful self desires. And God, if we've been proud and we've kept uh, your grace at bay, I ask that as the scriptures say, today would be the day of salvation where we would stop fighting you. Jesus, make somebody a Christian today who is the unlikeliest candidate. Because salvation is of you and it's inherently a miracle. God, help us to deeply love the God we have not believed in. In the saving name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said. Share a couple announcements. Real quick, we don't have an announcement video this week. I'm gonna tell you what's up. I wanna remind you of the Good Friday service. Uh, Friday night at six and Easter Sunday morning at nine are both gonna be fully bilingual services. This is gonna be really exciting as we live translate the sermons. This is gonna be cool. Um, It's gonna allow us to really operate as one family by having everybody in the room at the same time, both Friday night and on Saturday morning. Um, as I try to always tell you guys at Easter, 
please, please, please be thinking about who you're going to bring. Okay? I've jokingly said, and it's, there's a little bit of data to back it up, um, your, your, your cousin's brother's roommate, who's a practicing witch, will probably come to church at Christmas and Easter. Okay? People who have religious beliefs that you just do not believe they would ever say yes to an invitation. America is religiously screwy, okay? It's screwy. Somebody who calls themselves Wiccan also adopts a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and oh, Jesus is cool too. Do not say no for the person. If you love somebody, bring them, particularly Sunday morning. If you love somebody, bring them. You do not know that they're gonna say no. You don't know that, okay? Secondly, uh, on May 1, we're doing a child dedication. Because of COVID, it's been a little while. But uh, if God has graced your family with a new baby or if a new child has come into the family through adoption, I'm not aware of any adoptions recently, um, or if simply you're new to the church and you've never dedicated your kids and you're parenting to the Lord before, um, we're going to be doing that on May 1. So if you'd like to participate in that, please text me. Um, Right there in the bulletin, my cell phone number is there. Just reach out to me or talk to me face-to-face and say, I'd like to participate in that. Um, And then a great time to invite family, by the way. Um, And then on May 15th, we're going to be celebrating baptism. Same thing. Please just text or call me or come talk to me if you're interested in being baptized. I'm going to have a brief class that only meets once, maybe 45 minutes Uh, But anybody who's interested in baptism, I'm going to meet with you and make sure you have a careful and clear biblical understanding of what baptism is and what it is not to decide for sure if that's uh, the next step for you. All right? All right, our benediction, and then we're going to go. Stop counting spiritual brownie points, brothers and sisters. Humble yourself. Receive grace. I love you. Have a good week.